everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for March 31st, 2021. Uh, kind of a lighter week, you know, it's the it's the fifth Wednesday of the month. And although there are a couple of really great comics, for the most part, there's not a lot of like big comics that, that people are waiting for or looking forward to, um, as opposed to like next week where we're getting Geiger and we're getting uh, Tankers from Bad Idea, number one, and the second issue of ENIAC. Uh, just a lot of books that people have really been uh, looking forward to. Whereas this week, uh, it's just it's a little bit lighter. So uh, just a reminder that all the DC books are over in the DC Spotlight that got released on Tuesday. Or you can go check it out on the Comic Boom uh, YouTube channel you want to see uh, graphics and uh, Rocky and my smiling faces and, and just be warned that those are uh, full of spoilers. We don't pull any punches on the, the DC spotlight. So I'll mention a couple words when I go over the, uh, the list of other books you might want to be interested in. I'll talk a little bit about the DC titles uh, just real briefly, uh, but if you want more details, go and, uh, and check out the uh, either the YouTube or the, the episode from, uh, from yesterday. Uh, but I'm going to talk about four books that I read didn't get my Marvel titles uh, in time, waited till uh, the last minute, and uh, I, really, I got to get some sleep. So um, I'm going to talk about four independent books, and uh, they're, they're pretty good, and uh, it's probably going to be no surprise to everybody what my book of the week is if you've been uh, following this podcast for a while. So uh, let me start with crossover number five. It's written by Donnie Cates. We have Jeff Shaw on the art. The kind of handling the colors. John J. Hill does letters and design. Um, I sort of feel like this title's sort of lost its way a little bit. It started off, it was super intriguing. It was very compelling. You wanted to know what was going on. It was very much celebrating the love of comics. But I feel like the last couple issues, it sort of meandered. And, uh, and this particular issue... When I read it, I got to the end and I thought, that's it? That's the whole story? That couldn't have been 20 pages. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, this is a really compelling story. You know, the idea that uh, on a random summer day, uh, the sky sort of cracks open or rips open and all these heroes and villains from different comic universes come pouring out in, in the town of Denver city of Denver, I guess I should say. And, um, you know, all these things that we thought were, were fake and fantasy and fiction are actually real. And somebody erects a dome over this uh, battle, this big summer crossover. That's where the title comes from crossover and all the quote unquote comic book or fictional characters are, are stuck under the dome. And then the main character L she's trying to find her way into the dome to rescue her parents who are supposedly trapped under there. And also in the first issue, she comes across a, a girl who's a comic character. And you can tell the comic characters because the way they're colored with the little uh, printing dots, uh, colored dots, like the old Sunday funny strips or old old comics uh, books from years past. Uh, and she's trying to take this little girl back uh, under the dome where she'll be safe because uh, the rest of the world, if, if they come across any of these uh, superhumans, in, uh, in the regular world, not under the dome, they'll, they'll kill them, they'll trap them, they'll imprison them and experiment on them. And yeah, it's, it's, it's basically not good. So 
that's been the, the premise of the story. And that all sort of got established in the first couple of issues, maybe three issues. And then since then, I mean, this is, this is issue number six, I think, or five. What is it? Number, yeah, number five. Um, and so, yeah, issue four and five, it, it really, like the story hasn't moved forward much. And it's been a little, it's been a little bit disappointing. That being said, I, I trust Donnie Cates that this story is going to wind up being really good. And maybe it's just, a, you know, if you have one down issue, you just think, okay, well, you have to have the lows so you can have the highs, right? The contrast. Um, and there is some action in this issue, but I don't know, for some reason, it just, it didn't feel very compelling. It felt like this is action for action's sake. We're not really moving the story forward in terms of getting the answers about sort of the main plot. Like, is Ellie going to be able to rescue her parents? Are they going to be able to get into the dome? Um, you know, it just, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's, it's still good. I'd still recommend it. And I think the sixth issue is going to finish off the first arc. So maybe they were holding things back for that big finish of the, of the first arc. And I think it's still selling pretty well. Um, but yeah, I, it, it didn't, hasn't blown me away. Like the first couple issues were just so good. And even issue three was pretty solid, but four and five. Yeah. It just, I don't know. It's meandering uh, a little bit. That being said, the art is still spectacular. Color work is good. Uh, I think the dialogue is is pretty solid, but it's just yeah, the, it's the pacing that's uh, that's kind of bugging me. So uh, I guess we'll see. We'll have to wait and see how it all uh, plays out. So uh, all right, on to the next book I'm going to talk about. It's uh, also from Image. It's Department of Truth, number seven. It's written by James Tynan. We have art by Tyler Boss, colors by Roman Titov. Letters by Aditya Bidikar, designs by Dylan Todd. And this is um, another one uh, of sort of a, a flashback or telling the, the origins of the Department of Truth. So we don't get the regular artist Martin Simons. And for the last couple of issues, we've been getting the, uh, I, I guess you'd say the secret origin of, of Lee Harvey Oswald, which was one of the best moments of, of 2020 in comics and in my mind and in, in the mind of uh, a couple of the other uh, crew here at the, the comic source, just when you find out that Lee Harvey Oswald of all people is, is heading up the department of truth, it was just such a, a cool moment. Um, and so for the last couple of issues, we've been learning about the department of truth as well as how Lee Harvey Oswald got uh, recruited into it. And this is sort of continuing that and, and learning a little more, a little bit more. Uh, there's also a lot of UFO, stuff in this one that's based on uh, real life UFO sightings and, and claims of sightings and whatnot. So th that's one of the interesting things about this Department of Truth book. Uh, it It's based on or it pulls from a lot of real life conspiracy theories, real life events where, you know, it, it, that's an interesting term. You say it's pulled from, from real life events. So pulled from people's actual accounts. Like, yes, I, I really saw that UFO. Right. That's a that's a real life event that somebody claimed to see it, whether the UFO is real or not, is another story altogether. Right. Um, and, you know, people go back and forth on it. And supposedly the government has admitted now. And but I mean, it's that's neither here nor there. The fact of the matter is that Tynan is is weaving a very tightly uh, plotted and paced story here. Uh, I do wish that the art was a little more consistent. 
And that's not to say that the art here is is bad. It, it's not. The art here is, is pretty good, actually. Um, not my favorite style of art, but uh, I actually prefer this art more than uh, the Martin Simons uh, kind of regular main storyline art, which tends to be a little more uh, impressionistic and uh, and much less clean than than this art. But the the problem I have is that in the last three issues, I think we've had three different artists. And I, I just, I, I'd rather have one artist, you know, and obviously that's maybe not uh, realistic these days, you know, with timelines and whatnot. And that's fine if you want to switch off between an artist or two. Um, but when it's like the third issue in a row with a different artist, I mean, I guess Tynan is just wanting to work with, with different artists, which I, I guess I can understand, you know, you want to dance with all the girls, <laughs> you know, at the party. Um, but I, I just, I would like some consistency in the art and I, I am not really a trade person. I don't really read much in trade, but I have to imagine if you are a person who reads stuff in trade that that constant shifting of art styles got to pull you out of the narrative um, a little bit. So I just wish that, you know, if, if Simons is not going to do all the issues, which, you know, again, could be a, a matter of timing. I don't know how fast he is. Um, but get one other person to come in, you know, and trade off arcs or whatever you need to do. But switching up with different artists every, every month, it just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Um, but that being said, it, it is a really good story. It's, it's one of the better issues uh, in a while. It's been interesting to see Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, how he got recruited in. And it was interesting to hear about kind of the very beginnings of the Department of Truth. Um, this one isn't so much about Harvey himself himself like any events that particularly happened to him but it's more just about Tynan sort of showing us who Harvey is in terms of we all know him as the uh, assassin supposed assassin of JFK but but who is he in context of this department of truth story like w what drives him what what are his motivations what kind of person is he uh, and he does that in the context of um, Lee Harvey Oswald, much younger version, uh, learning about UFOs and the conspiracy around UFOs and and whatnot. So it's a solid issue. Like I said, the art is great. Uh, the uh, the color work is good. This zero complaints about the dialogue or the pacing or the plotting of this book. It is one of the better books on the stands for sure. Um, and I know I'm nitpicking about uh, having a different artist on on each of the last uh, three issues because individually the art sort of stands on its own and again this is the same here with Tyler Boss but yeah just the constant switching of artists just it's not it's not not to my liking which you know again and maybe maybe you like it hey great no no problem but it's just personal that I uh personal preference that I prefer a little more stability in my uh in my art so anyway let's move on to uh next book I'm going to talk about this is uh, an aftershock book it's Nuclear Family number two, Bad Transmission. It's from writers. It's from writer Stephanie Phillips. The art is by Tony Shastin. Colors by J.D. Mettler. And letters by Troy Petrie. Um, I didn't know <laughs> at all what this uh, book was was about. I mean, here Nuclear Family, which means you know a wife, um, a husband, a son, a daughter, and a dog. I think. Um, and you kind of think, okay, 
you know, what does that mean? Well, in context of the, the 50s, the late 50s, where the first issue was set, well, it's got a double connotation, right? Like that's the atomic age, atomic bomb had been invented uh, in the mid to late 40s and uh, the 50s were a time of great prosperity in the United States and uh, technology was taking leaps forward, but there was also that constant threat of uh, these nuclear weapons being used against uh, the United States by the uh, Soviet Union and uh, and vice versa. And so it, it was the beginnings of the Cold War and there was that that threat, you know, the, the atomic age. So that, that term nuclear family has a a couple different connotations. So we saw at the end of the first issue that it appeared that that's uh, what had happened. Nuclear war had had broken out, and just kind of wondering, okay, so what? We, we got to know the the main uh, character, the patriarch of the family, and uh, supposedly bombs have dropped on the end, and that's a pretty big cliffhanger to, to leave off on. So, what exactly are you know where are we where are we at with this McLean family that we're uh, that we're learning about? Um, and the other part is that the book supposedly is uh, is based on a Philip K. Dick uh, short story called Breakfast at Twilight. So I, I've, I've never read that, um, but I know Stephanie Phillips uh, as a creator, as, an, as a writer, likes to, she, she's very much into history. Her dad's a history teacher, and she very much likes to, to pull from uh, real world events in the past or um, in, in the case of this story, sort of the the feeling of that era of the late fifties um, and establish a story there, but it was hard to see where she was going. So is this going to be a dystopian story about a family that survives a nuclear Holocaust? Is it going to be a little more in the horror band? They're going to become mutated by the, the radiation. Like what exactly is, is going on? Um, so with the second issue, we, we get a lot of answers to that, but not until almost right at the end of the issue with one of the revelations, all of a sudden, you start to get ideas of what might be going on, um, and it's and it's great. Uh, it's, it's it's interesting. It's another one of those books that's uh, very tightly paced. You get a big chunk of story. Um, the dialogue is tight. It's plotted very well, and uh, and it makes you think and it makes you wonder and you, you start forming um, theories about what can be going on. And the other part of it that's really great that I really enjoy is the fact that. This isn't some, you know, gun host revivalist. It's not uh, like a, like a lot of times with these type of stories. It's a you're following a, a soldier or a police officer or somebody who's kind of trained to handle these kind of situations, stressful situations, you know, and knows how to use a weapon and whatever. Um, that's not the case here at all, right? Uh, and I think that that makes for uh, a more compelling story. It's like. We, we really are seeing this whole story play out in uh, like through the eyes of, a, of an everyman, you know, uh, like if, if you or I were, were caught up in this situation, you know, Mr. McLean, he, he's, he's a used car salesman, doesn't even work at a, um, like a new car lot. It's, it's used cars. So, you sort of wonder you can just put your yourself in that position, right? You can put yourself in the, in the, in the shoes of Charles McLean and, and wonder what you would do, especially if you had, you know, a wife and a son and a daughter that you were trying to protect and your whole world gets thrown sideways 
and there's things that are inexplicable going on and you're just trying to protect your family and you're trying to, to mostly you're trying to figure out what in the heck is going on. And so it's, uh, it makes for a very compelling read because uh, you really feel for these, uh, these characters, the McLeans. The other part of it is the artwork by Tony, Tony Shastine. Uh, I mentioned it uh, when I was talking about the first issue, how it sort of has this, this sheen to it, this, this sort of, I don't want to say plastic look, but you know how uh, in the in the 50s, in that era of uh, of kind of architecture and design, everything sort of had that that plastic look like, you know, that was just, you know, plastic hadn't been around for a long time. And it was you know the wave of the future. And uh, it, it was just everything had a real look to it, um, a very solid look, um, kind of shiny sort of rounded um, and it, it was just the aesthetic of the time. Well, Tony's art has that feel, right? Everything has a little bit of a, a sheen to it. Not as much in this issue as in the first issue, because obviously a, a nuclear bomb <laughs> has dropped. So there's sort of a haze uh, over some of the art, especially when they're outside due to the destruction and whatnot. But there's still that, still that look, that uh, very '50s look to the art, and uh, I, I'd never seen Tony Chastain's art before. But based on this, based on the strength of the art here, like I would, I would pick up something. Like if I saw the name on something, I, I would pick it up, uh, just based on how good the art is. Um, and you know, depending on the writer and what the story was, you know, I might just add it, to, you know, to my to my order. Um, but I at least would, would pick it up if I was at the, the comic shop and thumb through it uh, because the art's that good. So um, I can't say much more about the story without giving away some spoilers because, uh, as I said, it is very tightly uh, plotted. Stephanie Phillips uh, jams a bunch of, uh, of story into these, into these pages, and so it's hard for me to, to talk about any of the events in the book without giving anything away, but uh, it is really compelling. I do recommend it. Um, you get that Cold War feel. You, you certainly get that empathetic feel for Charles McLean and his family. And uh, you're still not quite sure what's going on, but the sense of menace and the sense of bewilderment comes across. Like, what the heck is going on? You, you're, you're trying to figure it out. Charles McLean and his family are trying to figure it out. And then, like I said, toward the end of the issue, as things start to be revealed, you start to get an idea, maybe a better idea than McLean and his family, than Charles McLean and his family do uh, about what exactly is going on. So uh, another, another great book from, uh, from Stephanie Phillips. Um, she is just, she's been a, a, a superstar in the making for, for like the last year or so. And uh, like, we're, hopefully we're going to sync up our schedules and have her back on the show um, sometime soon, because man, she is just knocking it out of the park. Uh, all right, let's see. Up next, another image book. Um, and this is one I, I have, you know, th this is the one book that sort of, um, what is it, the, the exception to the rule, right? Like I was talking about, there wasn't a lot coming out today that was that was really anticipated. For me, I'd already read this quite a while ago because Joe Henderson, the writer, was kind enough to share it with me um, while we were talking about setting up the interview. Pff, man, it must have been, I think it might have even been in December uh, when we had him on for uh, for the 12 days of the comic source. Um, and, and this was announced. Um, 
but all that being said, it's still something I've looked forward to so I can get my myself my physical copy. And of course, I had to order several because <laughs> I wanted all the all the different covers. Um, but this is the same Eisner nominated creative team that brought us Skyward, which was nominated for Best New Series a couple of years ago for the Eisners. Um, and so we have, as I said, Joe Henderson writing. We have Lee Garbett handling the art. We have Antonio Fabella doing the colors and Simon Bolin doing the letters. Uh, it's called Shadecraft. We had uh, Joe Henderson on uh, about a month ago or so uh, to talk about it. Uh, and we'll that conversation that I released for that episode with Joe, uh, you guys only got to hear half. You only got to hear half of um, the interview, half of the conversation Joe and I had, because like I said, we released it about a, a month ago, three weeks maybe, and we didn't want to put out any spoilers. You know, we wanted you to be able to pick up Shadecraft and read it and enjoy it and, uh, you know, experience it for yourself. But then we also wanted to dive in, you know, me having already read it, I certainly wanted to dive in a little deeper with Joe and talk about some of the motivations the characters have and some of the other um, kind of uh, details of the story. Um, but it get that stuff gets a little spoilery, not not super spoilery, but it gets a little bit, uh, you know, into the details of of the story. So that episode, the, I'm going to release the, the entirety of that conversation, the first half where we talk in general, along with the second half, uh, where Joe and I go into details on motivations of characters and some of the things that happen in the in the first issue and whatnot. So that'll be coming this Friday, uh, a more detailed spotlight on uh, on Shadecraft. Um, but if you're going to your comic shop to pick up your books today, make sure you pick this up. My understanding is it's already sold out at the uh, distributor level. So uh, whatever is out there on your uh, on the racks is all there is. Um, so uh, the story itself is uh, about a young Asian woman, uh, which is sort of, um, <laughs> I mean, and again, Joe, you know, he's been working on this for a long time. And all of a sudden with uh, the, the rising violence against Asians, which uh, I certainly condemn. Uh, and I encourage you all to, uh, to do what you can to help donate to um, causes and, uh, you know, help raise awareness. This isn't something that's brand new, but it does seem to be uh, worse in terms of frequency and maybe in um, intensity, um, you know, rather than sort of passive racism or, or name calling, like people are being physically attacked and people are being harmed um, and it's, it's not okay. Um, so it's interesting. It's very sort of timely that, uh, that Joe has a, a young Asian American woman as the protagonist here named Zadie. And uh, again, through, through once again, through no um, way of knowing or no gazing in a crystal ball, all of a sudden we have this book coming out with an Asian character, you know, right at the sort of the perfect time in my mind to remind everybody um, that they're just like us, you know, just because they're different race or different ethnicity, uh, we're all much more alike than we are different, especially when you start talking about on a like actual physical scientific genetic level, right? Like 99.999999% the same, you know, and that tiny, tiny, tiny percentage that's different that gives somebody blonde hair or uh, black hair or brown hair or slanted eyes or, you know, darker skin or whatever. It, it, it doesn't, it, those differences don't matter. They shouldn't matter. 
Um, and so I'm glad that uh, we're getting the story of uh, an Asian American woman. And Joe and I talk about this in the interview uh, as well. And so um, the fact and the fact that she's Asian doesn't really play that much into the story in terms of anything that moves the narrative along. It just so happens um, that this is a story about a, a family that's of Asian descent. And I, and I love that. That uh, And again, we talk about that in the um, in the interview, I, I specifically asked Joe if if some of the things going on, the the, the antagonists, the shadows, or what have you that come alive, is, did he pull from any sort of Asian folklore? And he specifically said that he he didn't want to do that. Um, and so again, go listen to that interview. There's a lot of a lot of good information there. But um, this is a story of of, uh, of Sadie, and shadows are coming to life. People aren't necessarily believing her. She's not sure she believes it herself. And as the, the issue plays out, we start to see that it's something that's tied in with uh, her family. Uh, we get to meet a couple of her friends. She's in high school and, uh, and all that is handled very realistically. And uh, it's a bit of a mystery. We don't know exactly what's going on. This, uh, this book, although it has a, a little bit in common in terms of the feel of it with Skyward, because this is another young female protagonist uh, and it's the same creative team. It does feel different. Uh, it's a little darker, um, both in terms of the story that's being told as well as the, the color work by Antonio, which is spectacular. He does a great job of uh, using a darker palette giving us those shadows, you know, dark blues and blacks and whatnot. But there's always a tendency when you use those color palettes, especially in a book that is leaning toward horror, for the art to get muddy uh, and the, the color work to obscure the line work of, of the artist. And Lee Garbett's got wonderful line work and great storytelling and great transitions from panel to panel. He's, he's great. He's a very, very good artist. And I think not enough people... Uh, recognize how, how good he is. Uh, but anyway, getting back to Antonio's colors, um, he, his color work doesn't overpower the line work uh, and it doesn't make the artwork look muddy whatsoever. Um, I mean, there's, there's a reason that this creative team on their first project together, first comic that Joe Henderson had ever written, uh, Skyward got nominated for uh, an Eisner. It's that good. And uh, I, they're picking up right where they left off. If you like Skyward, you're going to love this. I loved it. Um, it. It's hard to compare because they are sort of different. Because um, I, I was after I after I read it again, which I think was for the third or fourth time uh, before I got ready to come on and talk about it. I was trying to decide if I liked the first issue of Skyward more or the first issue of this more, and I couldn't really pick between the two because they are different enough. Uh, but they're both really really great. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see these guys get a another Eisner nomination for this. But you know, I know it's only the first issue, so that's probably a little premature, and we'll have to see how it uh, how it plays out. But the whole creative team is firing on all cylinders. Um, you know, from from Henderson's plotting and, and scripting to the line work from Garbett to the, the colors I talked about from Antonio, and then uh, I didn't mention Simon Bolin, the letterer. Um, part of the reason that this book flows so well is the placement of those word balloons and uh, and the dialogue and the scripting. And a lot of people sometimes don't realize, and I try, I've been trying lately to, to put it out there a little more about how important it is 
not just where the word balloons are so they don't obscure the art, but how they lead your eye around the page and how many lines are in each balloon, how close the balloons are to each other, because all of that, all of that helps control the pace at which you read the story. If you get three or four word balloons that are stacked on top of each other on the left side of the panel, you're going to read those, you know, boom, 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 right? And you're going to read them much more quickly than if they were spread like horizontally across the top of the panel, or if they were dispersed throughout the panel kind of haphazardly, that would take even longer. So that's how you control the, the pace of, of the reading. So uh, it's done expertly by Simon Boland. Uh, there are times where there's a lot of dialogue on certain pages um, because this is the first issue and it, it does get a little bit expository, just filling us in on who these characters are and uh, sort of setting the, the stage for what's to come. And then we have other pages uh, where there's no dialogue at all. Uh, and we just get to see the beautiful line work of, of Lee and the colors of Antonio. Um, and seeing those shadows come to life and the menace that you feel. Uh, and, you know, kudos to, uh, to Joe Henderson and the team for realizing that putting dialogue, putting any words, even caption boxes on these type of pages would have been, uh, probably superfluous. It, it just wasn't necessary. You get everything you need to know in the art. Um, the emotion comes through, what Sadie's going through, the menace, all of that comes through based on um, what's happening in the panels, as well as the, the quality of the line work and the color work. So it's my book of the week. It's spectacular. Uh, I've been waiting to be able to talk about it with people. So I'm really excited probably not as excited as Joe and the rest of the team, but I'm pretty excited that this is going to be out there um, in the world and people are going to be talking about it. I'm looking forward to seeing how people react on social media and whatnot after they've had a chance to, uh, to check it out. And like I said, uh, pretty sure it's sold out on the, uh, the distributor uh, level already. So you want to be sure that if you hit your comic shop today, that you pick it up Shadecraft number one, uh, and I don't think you'll regret it. It's a great start to the, uh, to the series. So uh, that's it for the books I'm going to talk about in detail. Let me give a rundown on some of the other titles that are coming out today. Uh, in addition to Nuclear Family from Aftershock Comics, I Breathe the Body, number three. That, that is a weird book. Um, I'm not sure if I like it or not, but that being said, I've, I've read all three issues. Uh, it's written by Zach Thompson with art by Andy McDonald. And it's just weird. It's weird. It's out there. It's, it's sort of body horror. And I, I'm not sure. I think if you like body horror, if you like horror comics in general, you're going to like it. It's certainly a comment on celebrity these days uh, in terms of, you know, YouTube celebrity um, influencer celebrity status and, and that sort of thing. Um, sort of satirical and, and really creepy. And, uh, yeah, I think I like it, but I'm not sure. Uh, so that kind of tells you what it's, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's weird. It's a weird one for me. It's not normally a book that I type of book that I would, I would really be into, but it's Aftershock. So I had to check it out. And the first issue was compelling enough that I, I came back for the second one and it, it swerved even into the weirder. So uh, it is, it, it has been interesting. Um, over at Dark Horse, Witcher Fading Memories, number four, if you're a fan of the, the Witcher, uh, property that's the the final issue of that miniseries 
Uh, at DC, we've got Batman Catwoman number four, as well as Strange Adventures number nine. Those are both written by Tom King. Batman Catwoman has the Clayman art. Strange Adventures has Mitch Gerrards and, and Doc Shaner. Again, we talk in, in detail with full spoilers about uh, these books, along with other history of the DC universe, which was absolutely amazing from writer John Ridley, as well as uh, Flash number 768 and Future State Superman versus Imperius Lex number three. Uh, those two uh, Tom King books, uh, Batman Catwoman, we talk about it in the in the DC Spotlight episode. I'm just not sure about that one yet. Jury's still out on that. Strange Adventures is very good. And it's uh, evoking some negative emotions in me, which I think that's Tom's point. Um, so it, it's it's very well done. But it is sort of a cynical and, and it's sort of tough to read. Uh, it is not a, a positive, hey, let's go read some comics and have a lot of fun type story, which when you hear Adam Strange, that's sort of the way I feel about Adam Strange. You know, he, he's from a a more innocent time in comics, it feels like. So to have him in a comic that's examining what the truth is and perspective and whatnot is a very interesting dichotomy. Um, so uh, if you're into that sort of thing, you're probably going to like it. But I can see why some people might be turned off by it. Uh, and yeah, the Batman Catwoman, I haven't heard that many people talking about it. And it's just, it jumps around from three different timelines and it's a little bit hard to figure out which timeline you're in sometimes. And so it's a little, it's a little tough to follow. So anyway, if you want more details, go listen to our DC spotlight. We uh, dive into all that there. Um, over at uh, Image, in, a, in addition to the uh, books that I talked about, we have Spawn number 316 and Two Moons number two. Over at Marvel, again, pretty light week. We do see uh, Avengers Curse of the Man-Thing number one, written by Steve Orlando. There's also the first issue of the Beta Ray Bill, five-issue miniseries from Daniel Warren Johnson. He's both writing and illustrating that. We have the fourth issue of Black Cat. We have a uh, King in Black, a Ghost Rider number one, one shot. We also have uh, the first issue of a Silk miniseries, supposed to be five issues. Uh, so that is hitting stands. And then uh, X-Men number 19, as well as X-Men Legends number two are also out on stands today. And then uh, the last thing I'll mention from Vault, they have a new series starting called Witch Blood number one, which I don't know much about, but the uh, the cover looks cool. So uh, I may I may pick that up when I hit up my LCS myself later today. So um, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Uh, again, uh, apologies I didn't get any Marvel books in time to, to be able to talk about those. It is a, a lighter week, like I said. Uh, if you're only going to pick up one book, it should be Shadecraft from uh, Image. If you're picking up two, it would probably be Shadecraft and uh, the other history of the DC Universe, which Rocky uh, from Comic Boom and myself both really, really loved. So uh, anyway, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Uh, as always, we want to thank you for your support and for giving it a listen, and we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So 
once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.